Hello and welcome to Wellbeings. Today's episode, as always, is brought to you by Jackson White, Attorneys at Law, and by Birdie Scrubs, the most comfortable medical apparel on, that's right, the entire planet. Today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking once again with Dr. Carl S. Only this time we don't talk about his role as a doctor, but rather we talk about his role as a person in recovery. We talk about the 12 steps of a 12-step recovery group, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have to commend Carl for his vulnerability, his honesty, and his courage to embark upon this conversation. I learned so much, and I am so excited to share this with you at a time at which this could never be more important. So hang on to your seats, folks. Dr. Carl S. Carl S., how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Tyler. How about you? <laughs> I am doing great as well, and it is a delight to have you back. Uh, those of of my audience who have who listen regularly will will recognize you. Uh, they'll recognize you in a different context, though. They'll recognize you from some of the letters after your name: the MD, the HMDC, the CMD. But today we are going to talk about uh, some other letters, some letters that represent a, a twelve step twelve step program. And this is such an important topic. I have been trying to uh, find guests to speak with me about this, most of whom have been therapists and the like, uh, but I've really wanted to find somebody with some personal experience, so to speak, and you have uh, the, the courage to, to uh, speak with me. So thank you so much. I, I'm really, really appreciative. Yeah, thank you for having me. And it's a super important topic, uh, maybe more so during the pandemic, but it's always important, I think, uh, for people like me, who, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, all the professional accolades and accomplishments that I've had, but I really would not have any of those if I had not been able to stop drinking and doing drugs, uh, which was really out of control for me. Uh, and I, I, in November, I celebrated 30 years of sobriety, uh, you know, through my participation in a 12-step program. And to me, that's probably the greatest accomplishment, uh, certainly, uh, that I would not have any of the professional accomplishments without that, uh, that personal accomplishment. And so uh, I'm happy to kind of share my experience, strength, and hope a little bit with your uh, listeners without, uh, you know, it's, it's an anonymous program, so we don't want to get uh, too, uh, too detailed or anything like that, but uh, super important stuff. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. And, and when I asked you if you would be willing to, to speak with me about this on the, on the podcast, uh, you readily agreed. Uh, one thing that you, you said, you said you didn't want to, um, you didn't want to to give a drunkologue, and and so perhaps to to the uninitiated, what what is a drunkologue, and and <laughs> and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, you know, you go to twelve step meetings, and uh, you know the the idea of it is to focus on recovery. But of course, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, we've 
done things that we're not proud of. We, uh, you know, our behavior when we, when our lives are kind of controlled by, uh, you know, trying to get loaded all the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, we do things that are, um, you know, not in keeping with our personal values and that, uh, you know, can kind of lead into this vicious cycle. Cause it's like, Oh, I did such a terrible thing. You know, I'm going to drink more to kind of drink that away. So a drunkalog is just where people, uh, get onto these big long stories about all of the horrible things they did. Honestly, when I hear those things, I I relate. You know, I say that's something. You know, but for the grace of God, that would have been me. Uh, you know, uh, running over somebody in my car drunk, or um, you know, all of the other things that that people do and blackouts and so on. So I think there's a balance there, right? I, I mean, that's our stories are important, and in some ways, those horror stories are like our, our greatest possessions, because, because by doing that, that's like, Hey, I don't ever want to go back there. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so that's, uh, that's what we're talking about. And there's kind of an interesting phenomenon that occurs sometimes in, in terms of drunkologues. Um, most people, uh, would, would, uh, perhaps be embarrassed or ashamed and not want to talk about thing, these things but sometimes you uh in in the rooms of of, of recovery groups 12-step groups uh that you you see kind of the opposite where where they where these these by most metrics horrific experiences are worn as kind of a badge of honor uh, I, yeah. I was worse than you or or something to that effect um, yeah and 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 so so yeah that's uh, those are certainly entertaining stories but but perhaps uh, maybe not the most helpful stories in terms of recovery so let's you congratulations on 30 years uh, that's a tremendous milestone um <laughs> One, yeah. a day one at a time right uh but right i, I mean it, it's it's a huge number and you're like whoa how did how did that happen all of a sudden but really it's like anything else it just creeps up on you you know suddenly uh here you are you're like i never you know i didn't want to live to be over 30 when i was a kid and and uh all that stuff so yeah yeah it's uh but it really is it's a, it's a one day at a time program yeah and, and yet so, you, so you've been sober um, for, for longer than many people have been drinking. And so, so a question that probably many people have is, well, you know, it's been 30 years. So can't you just have a drink now? Um, (laughs) what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, once in a while, somebody will say that, uh, but I think people who ask those questions, uh, oftentimes probably well-intended other times. I I mean, the people, People who seem to be the most interested in in trying to say, "Oh, come on, you can have one drink." Um, I, I often wonder if maybe they've got a little mm-hmm. <laughs> a little alcohol problem themselves. But but for me, I never really drank like a normal person, right? Uh, I, I the first time I ever drank really was uh, at a tenth grade cross country team party, and it's a bit of a drunkalog, but. Um, I basically, I went to the kid's house, you know, a bunch of kids there. They had uh, Mad Dog 2020, the old uh, Mogan David um, fortified wine. And, oh, it's just nasty, nasty stuff. But uh, I think I drank a lot of it. I I, I remember part of it. Um, And then the next thing I knew, I woke up and I was in bed. And there was this guy with a tie on that was in front of me. And uh, 
you know, he asked me, do you know where you are, Carl? And I'm like, yeah, I'm upstairs. Cause I figured I was like upstairs at this kid's house, you know, in one of the beds or something. And he said, yeah, you're upstairs on the fifth floor of Lakeside hospital. And, and I was like, Oh crap. You know, my parents are going to have my ass when they, and he's like, well, your mom's right over behind that curtain there. And, you know, I was in a blackout for hours and I was told later that, uh, not only did I drink a bunch of Mad Dog at this party, but I, I drank a four-ounce bottle of elixir of turpin hydrate with codeine, which in Ohio you could buy, uh, you know, for like a buck fifty just by signing for it at the pharmacy back in the seventies. Um, and then I had drunk some cream dement and uh, fallen down the stairs. And ultimately, somebody called my dad. He came and picked me up and. You know, I puked all over the back of his Avanti and uh, <laughs> he took me in the house. And I guess I, my parents were both doctors. And so I guess uh, he, he would have to be like nudging me to make me breathe because I was stopping breathing. Uh, so ultimately, he took me to the hospital. I spent the night in ICU. But anyway, I mean, <laughs> I, and then I had to, you know, I got out of the hospital the very next day and I, um, you know, I had to clean up the vomit from the from the back of the Avanti. And, um, you know, what would have been a really awful experience for most people, you know, I missed the cross country meet. And uh, I was just like, hey, that was really cool, uh, you know, up until the point where I where I blacked out. And I, I mean, I never once thought like, oh, I should, um, I should be more careful. I was just like, oh, I can't wait till the next time. And, you know, I'll just, uh, you know, try to not not get totally out of control like that. So, and you know, throughout my drinking and using career, it was never about just getting a little buzzed, right? It was always just about getting obliterated. And I don't know what it is about my genetics or about my, um, you know, just my personality, whatever demons I was battling at <laughs> various times in my life, but it was just never about um, drinking like a gentleman or just getting a little tipsy. It was just about getting wasted. And, uh, so that's why in answer, sorry about the long roundabout answer to your question. But, uh, for me, you know, early in sobriety, I, I can remember like going to weddings and thinking, you know, I could probably have one glass of champagne and, you know, uh, I'd probably be fine. And, I have no idea if it's true or not. All I know is that when I get a little bit of, of alcohol in me or anything that, that uh, alters me, I just want a whole bunch more. So, you know, there's lots of talk nowadays about harm reduction and, you know, Suboxone for opioid addiction. And, you know, where um, for me, abstinence is just it's key, right? It's just, I, I wouldn't want to, it's like, that would be like playing Russian roulette for me to have a glass of champagne at a wedding uh, would be like playing Russian roulette. Well, like, why on earth would I do that? Why on earth would I, um, you know, have that potential for uh, craving wanting to get wasted when it's been 30 years? I just, you know what I mean? I mm -hmm. just do not want to take that risk. And, and I'm generally a risk taker, but that is not a risk I'm willing to take. Yeah, I, and I can I can certainly see why. And I, I would like to circle back and talk more about some of these harm reduction um, approaches and, and uh, medically assisted um, treatment and stuff like this. Um, but before we do, um, at, at what point did you realize that that it, it could be a problem for you? Something something that that you needed to 
to absolutely change? <laughs> well, um, I mean, it's really two different questions. One, did I realize there was a problem? Probably by the time I was in college. I mean, uh, I probably smoked pot virtually every single day, you know, 365 days a year from sophomore year of high school through about sophomore year of college. But I mean, I did not consider that a problem at all. Uh, it was in retrospect, it was terrible for my motivation, right? And I, I was not a very good college student, uh, uh, perhaps in part because of that. But I, I never felt like that was uh, like I couldn't stop if I wanted to or something like that. But uh, later, uh, you know, with alcohol and, and other substances, probably by the time I was late into my college career, I really knew because I had tried multiple times to just say, okay, you know, I'm going to go one week without drinking or something like that. And I, I just really couldn't do it now. Um, so that was sort of identification, right? That's sort of uh, like the first step, you know, recognizing that you're powerless over alcohol. Um, but uh, you know, as far as thinking that I really needed to do something about it, that took quite a few more years. Um, and that was, you know, it involved kind of me getting in trouble in certain ways that uh, where I, um, I was doing things that really were very um, against uh, my own personal ethics and so on and the way I'd been raised. And, um, but, uh, but really the, the way I was first introduced to recovery was actually through a family intervention. Uh, back during, during my intern year. Interventions were probably um, not as common back then as they are, as they are these days. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I had kind of heard about it, but I, I didn't exactly know when I walked into that hotel room with my, you know, both of my parents who'd flown in from out of town and uh, all my siblings and, and these two, uh, these two doctors, um, it was uh, threatening. I mean, I felt, I felt, uh, you know, I understood that they were coming from a place of love. And, and of course, by that time, I really knew that I was, uh, uh, kind of in trouble. And so they, um, but, but I also didn't like, like many of us alcoholic or not, <laughs> I did not like uh, being told what to do. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we got a little bit of a, an authority problem and, uh, uh, but ultimately, uh, that is uh, that is what happened. I, I went out and uh, went to a treatment center, and uh, you know, learned a lot of wonderful, wonderful things. So, uh, but that's ultimately um, how I became intimately acquainted with twelve-step programs. I should mention, um, you know, back in medical school, we had an assignment. Uh, I think it was first year uh, to go to a twelve-step meeting. And so, uh, you know, I called uh, uh, the Narcotics Anonymous uh, hotline or whatever and uh, said I was interested in attending a meeting, you know, as an observer uh, because they have open meetings and, and closed meetings. And, and so um, these like high school kids came and picked me up at my house, took me to this meeting and I, I went and I watched. And, you know, there were some people that had a few years of, of sobriety or clean time at the meeting. And I, I had to write a paper on it. And I can still remember saying, you know, this is a great program, uh, you know, it, that probably works really well for certain people. Um, 
And I know for me, theoretically, if I were to ever have a problem, it might not work for me because it involves not only believing in a higher power, but turning your will and your life over to that higher power. And I think I would have a hard time doing that. And uh, I think really for a lot of alcoholics, that is hard, right? We're used to running the show. We're used to, you know, it's all what we call self-will run riot. You know, I, I run everything. And um especially in a career like medicine where you're telling people what to do, people are asking you what to do. It's, it's really hard to take direction and to listen. Um, and it, obviously as a first year medical student, I was nowhere near ready for that. So. Mm-hmm. And, and you, and so you went off to a, was it a 30 day treatment center? Yes, it was. It was uh, the old Rancho Labrie out in, uh, in Dulzura, which is, it I was shut down a few years ago. I mean, it wasn't shut down. They just went, decided to close their doors. But uh, uh, yeah, and it was it was a great experience. They had quite a few doctors out there, so you know, there's a certain commonality. There's things that maybe uh, doctors might share among themselves that they're not going to share at a community twelve step meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, it was a really great experience. You know, I I mean some old timers, uh, in, in recovery programs sort of look down on, on it and they'll call it spin dry or whatever, but it was a luxury, right. And, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to take 30 days and actually I was there for 60 days. Cause I guess I was, a, <laughs> you <laughs> a know, a little remediation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, but you know, to be able to, in your adult life, take that kind of time to really just focus on yourself and getting better. Um, it is a huge blessing. And, uh, you know, for people that have that available to them, I just so encourage people to uh, take advantage of it, right? Because it's, uh, it really was a, an eye opener for me and a, and a game changer. Good for you. And it, and it was effective the first time. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it was about three. I, I mean, I stayed sober for a while and I was actually, I was in a monitored program at that time, you know, having to get urines and whatnot. But um, I, and really Tyler, I in no way uh, blame my family for what they did in intervening on me. But um, I think in some ways I harbored a re- resentment about just because <clears throat> I wanted to finish up my I was on a pediatrics um, uh, rotation at the time, and I really wanted to finish it up because there were only two other interns on the service. And if I if I had to leave, they would have to be on every other night call. And, uh, you know, it was just a few more days. And I, I said, you know, look, I, I know I've got a problem. I, I freely admit it. And I just I just need to finish out. It was like, I don't know, eight more days or something like that. Um, and my dad was like, no, you got to go tonight. And ultimately I walked out of the intervention, you know, and um, the next morning at like, you know, 6.30 a.m., I get this call from my residency director and he says, Carl, I talked to your dad, you know, uh, if you go to work this morning, I will kick your ass out of the residency program. You know, you need to do what your dad says. And, mm. oh, I was just so mad, you know, I was just uh, like, how dare they, you know? And, um, I know they were totally trying to save my life. And they, they probably thought that, you know, maybe if I knew I only had eight more days that maybe I would like OD or just do something really crazy. And, and who knows, maybe I would have, yeah. uh, but anyway, so I'm, so I'm not in any way trying to, uh, duck 
my own personal responsibility here, but I, I do in some ways think that um, because of that intervention and just because of being a little pissed about, um, you know, having to do it on somebody else's terms, um, I did not uh, fully, I was not fully committed to sobriety. And uh, so, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, so it took, a, it took a, about three more years. Uh, I, so I sobered up finally in 91. Um, you know, after sort of getting myself into uh, some trouble that I created myself that I could in no way try to, you know, blame anybody else for. Mm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so it took uh, took two tries for me. But you know what, Tyler, and, and you may know people like this, too. I, I mean, I've known people who literally have gone through treatment like over 20 times and then finally gotten long term sobriety after that. So, you know, you never give up. And that's one of the beauties of, of these recovery programs is um, there are people who are habitual relapsers, but if they come back uh, after a relapse, that is just, I, I mean, we are always so happy to see people come back that they didn't go out and die or, or kill themselves or kill somebody else and wind up behind bars or any of those things. It's uh, um, because that could happen to any, any of us, you know, and I, I have 30 years, I could, I could relapse too. Anybody can relapse, you, you know? Uh, so uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and um, did you go to multiple treatments or, or did you, uh, or did you use the one treatment and then, and then uh, find recovery ultimately in the rooms of the 12 step, 12 step program? I actually went back. I was a, I got two of those little, they used to give you this little keychain when you graduated from Rancho Libre. So I, I have two of them. Yeah. I went back there for, for 30 days. And then, um, you know, they asked me to, uh, go into a, a what they called in those days recovery houses I guess it's kind of like a sober living now um, and oh man I was like so against it I had a nice little apartment uh, in Ocean Beach and I I, I just so didn't want to go but I was kind of beat down and I I was willing to listen and so I took that direction I went and I lived in a place called the the Wayback uh, down in, in San Diego, kind of near downtown and spent a couple of months there. Um, it was, it was a humbling experience. Let's just say it was, um, well, it was not a high bottom kind of place, <laughs> you know, it was, um, and anyway, the first day I walked into a 12 step meeting, um, I was not one of those people who listened to others share and said, oh, well, hey, I never did that, you know, so I'm not as bad as this guy, you, you know. Uh, I always said that's something I could picture myself doing, you know, uh, when I'm in the depths of my disease. And, and I'm just so thankful to God that I never got to that point, right? Mm -hmm. So so I think, you know, looking at the commonalities is, is always good. But anyway, so I was in this recovery house and you know, like it was six cots in this room. And I, the guy in the bed next to me, I, I don't know if he had tuberculosis or what, but every morning about 4 a.m. he would start, it sounded like he was just coughing up like chunks of his lung. And um, it was not a fun place to be, but, uh, you know, and it was it was at 12-step meetings every single day, sometimes more than one meeting a day. And um, and meanwhile, I was, I was also back to work. Um, you know, I, I was in my... Uh, you know, I was, I was working at the time also. So anyway, it was, uh, it was a humbling experience. I, 
I think it has probably helped me, you know, looking back. And at the time I just said, you know what, I don't like it here, but I'm taking direction. I'm, I'm trying some new behavior and I'm not going to just do what I want because like, like uh, my sponsor at the time or, you know, other old timers in the program would say, you know, your best thinking got you here. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, that wasn't working for me. So I've, I was willing to, um, you know, go to this place and uh, you know, just experience that. And um, it, you know, it was helpful. Yeah. You know, I, I, I wasn't sure when we started this conversation, I wasn't sure how transparent I, w I was going to be with my own, my own personal experience, but I, but I, I too um, have have quite a bit of experience in uh, twelve step programs, um, and it, you talked about your Mad Dog twenty twenty experience. My, without giving a drunk a log of my own, um, I can relate to everything you've said so far. Uh, I remember the first time I drank. And oddly enough, it was also Mad Dog 2020. It must, it, it must <laughs> wow. be just some. Uh, it, it must be pretty accessible for uh, young kids with not very much money, <laughs> right? right. Cheap liquor. Um, but I, I remember uh, drinking it with my buddies, and and all of them stopped, and I kept going, and I kept, and I thought to myself, "Oh, this is what you're supposed to feel like." It was as if I didn't. It was just. It was as if something was missing my entire life, and and then when then when I drank, it was as if I it was it was the missing puzzle piece. I almost felt like this is what I, this is what's been missing. This is now I feel like how everybody else must feel. I I, I felt like it was it was the missing piece, and um, uh, of course, it, it, over time, it it led to quite a bit of trouble and. Uh, it it also led to um, the the rooms of of recovery, which um, there is a phrase "grateful alcoholic," and and I think what that means is um, sure I'm not grateful for the wreckage that I created in my life, but I'm grateful for the tools that I have acquired in recovery, and I don't don't know that I would have found them without without a, a twelve step program. Um, and so I, I relate to, to, to quite a bit of, of what you've said so far. Um, it's great. You yeah. know, you, you, you talk about, um, your, your, your first time in rehab, your second time in rehab, but these are just little finite windows of time. Um, and, and it is a luxury. You're, you're sheltered and in many ways it's, it's, uh, it's kind of the easiest part of recovery. Um, what, what has, what has worked since you, since you left the treatment center? What, what have you done to, to not be one of those folks who goes to 20 treatment centers <laughs> yeah well uh, i prayed a lot right uh I which think, is interesting uh, i'm sorry to interrupt but which is interesting because the, you mentioned being averse to the higher power thing yet the first thing you said was prayed a lot so so you learned something or you had a perspective change it sounds like i did i, I and i do think uh gosh there's just so much to really unpack in that question but I do think uh, the first thing people said is, uh, 
you know, change your, your playgrounds, playmates and play things. And uh, I think for people that are trying to uh, struggling with early sobriety, as painful as it is uh, to give up those things that are so familiar uh, sometimes that's really, really necessary. Right. And, and again, that's a luxury that not everybody can just up and move to a different place or avoid seeing people that maybe they used to party with and that, but that was really important. But I mean, there's so much Tyler. It's like, uh, as far as the God thing, you know, I know people who've been sober for decades who do not really believe in a benevolent God, you know, the sort of, you know, guy with the flowing beard and the robes that, that uh, you see in Bible movies and whatnot. But um, I think, you know, most people who uh, practice recovery at least have a, a notion of a higher power. And it, it does not have to be a traditional God. You know, it can be the universe, the source. There's all kinds of different um, sort of mystic or, or spiritual uh, frameworks that that you can uh, see in that but I guess for me um, when I when I would it was really during the the time after my intervention um, where I saw people who had long-term sobriety and heard their stories and I said you know what this person likes to get loaded in the same way that I do and um clearly something helped them get sober. It's not something that they did on their own <clears throat> and that, you know, they're willing to freely admit that. And so I thought, yeah, you know, there probably is a God uh, of some kind. And even if there isn't, uh, you know, I'm going to use that as a framework. Right. And um, it's, it's super helpful for lots of things. Right. And, you know, faith is faith. So, you know, you, you have a belief of something that um, that you can't see. Right. Uh, and uh, right in in these days, with the with all the uh, craziness coming out of with COVID and the stuff that you see online, and um, you know, I think there's a fine line that has to be walked there. But uh, I choose to believe that there is a benevolent higher power working in my life that I can pray to. And again, I can't know for sure. It's just a matter of faith. But if uh, it's easy enough to say. Suppose there were a benevolent higher power, a God working in my life. What would that God want me to do right now faced with this situation, right? And if I'm not sure of it, I will call my trusted advisors, right? I'll call my, you know, I got a sponsor. I'll call him and ask him, you know, give him all the ins and outs. And I think, you know, that's how God speaks to me. It's right through other people. Sometimes it's other things, um, but that doesn't work for everybody. So, um but but for me, that's been super helpful. And there's so much more. I mean, the, the steps, um, I often wish that, uh, that people who don't have an alcohol or drug problem would just work these steps because there's so much good stuff, right? It's not just that I'm not in charge of everything and, you know, I uh, try to turn my will and my life over to a benevolent higher power. Uh, which helps me behave in ways that are that are honorable and that are good and that are of service to others, um, but also being accountable. Right when I'm wrong, I promptly admit it. I'm I'm willing to apologize. Right. I uh, I, I just think you know making amends, all that stuff is is so good, and then helping others. Uh, so and, and you know taking an inventory of myself. Um, you know that's how you can that's how you can make yourself better is by seeing what's amiss. And why did, why did I act a certain way that I that did not make me feel good about myself? 
um, and the fellowship, right? I mean, I um, I don't go to church. I, I my church is in these in these twelve step meetings, right? That's my my kind of congregation. That's uh, where where we hang out. We we share war stories and we help each other, right? Uh, so so all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There we've ha- we've mentioned the steps quite a bit in in over the course of the last thirty minutes. Maybe you can. I don't know if there's an easy way, there easy way or brief way to answer this, but again, to the uninitiated, what what are the steps? Where where do they come from, and in in why do they work? Just give me the thumbnail version of this, maybe if you can. Sure, um, I'm you know, and I'm not a what we call a big book thumper, so I can't you know tell you what page everything is on. Uh, although I do have some favorite quotes. Um, but I think, you know, the, the program, the 12-step program came from uh, uh, Bill W. and Dr. Bob. Uh, it, it, the, the actual steps came, they were derived from uh, an older organization called the Oxford Group. Um, and they're basically just a recipe for, um, <clears throat> for being able to stay sober and uh, live your best life. I think it's, it's not all about so, being sober, but... Uh, you know, the first uh, few steps have to do with just accepting that you are powerless and that you are willing to concede that a higher power can can help, uh, uh, you know, help you stay sober and restore you to sanity. And then uh, there's the third step is about turning your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him. Um, and then the fourth and fifth step have to do with inventory um, the, the sixth and seventh step, uh, and it, actually a lot of the other steps have to do with, um, it, or up through the ninth step about, uh, sort of making amends, um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, looking at your own shortcomings and so on. Uh, and then, you know, there's, uh, maintaining a con, uh, uh, conscious contact with God. So like prayer and meditation, um, and uh, admitting it when you're wrong, uh, and then working with other alcoholics. So <clears throat> that's pretty much, uh, you know, a synopsis of the steps. Anyone that's interested in it, I mean, you just uh, you can just Google it. Uh, and uh, I don't know. For me, in some ways, the third step was like the most important step uh, because it it's like just to get me out of self will and to help me. Um, be willing to take direction and, uh, you know, not necessarily try to always run the show myself. I'm glad you said that. I, I was going to ask just kind of a, a, kind of an easy, a lazy question, I guess, I, I guess you could call it. I was, what's your favorite step? But, but that's kind of like asking <laughs> what, your, what your favorite kid is. Um, it, it, but you, but you answered it, uh, for me. Um, let's if you don't mind kind of kind of go through these these steps we, i know you you didn't want to do a drunk log but this is kind of a recovery log and i i know the steps are are written in order for a reason it would be nice just to i, I mean i wish we could just jump to step 12 and uh, <laughs> and, and i'll read it for for those who are unfamiliar having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs 
that would be great. Just jump there, you know, having had past tense. I mean, I've, I'm now spiritually awake because I worked the previous 11 steps. And now because I'm on fire and I know that this has done such a great good in my life, I want to help others and share, share these steps with others who are similarly afflicted. And then to practice these principles, uh, the, which principles, those that have been outlined in the previous steps in all of my affairs. And that goes to your point of, man, shouldn't everybody work this? I mean, all of my <laughs> affairs, not just my drinking life, but all of my, all of my life. Um, so, so uh, we'll just kind of go through this. I think this would be a, a pretty helpful exercise um, to maybe uh, remove some of the mystery of behind these steps, so that people who might be wondering, "Is this for me?" Um, you know, maybe we can maybe we can shed some light on this and and um, help people understand what's involved with this because it's much more than what you you think about what many people think about you know the smoky room and the bottom of the of the church basement you know <laughs> uh, a bunch of old old uh, big book big book thumpers as you say uh, it's much different than that so First step, um, we we admit that we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Um, so that this this um, this step, this is is where we we admit that yay, we do have a problem and we can't uh, we can't handle it on our own. It's unmanageable, and and that of course is a pretty bleak perspective until you come to step two, and where you come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to to sanity. So right. maybe talk speak, speak to that for a minute. Does that mean that? Everybody who uses these steps uh, is insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a kind of a hard thing for people to swallow. And really, it's the second half of that first step that our lives have become unmanageable. That a lot of people are just, I, I think, um, they feel like, you know, they've got all these plates spinning and so on, but they're still keeping it together, you know. And, uh, uh, but yeah, and I had no trouble. Uh, acknowledging that my behavior was insane, right? I mean, this the stuff that I was doing just to be able to stay loaded and and uh, you know just lies that I told people and so on. That I, I mean, insane is kind of a pejorative term these days, right? We don't use it very often uh, anymore. But uh, and and a lot of this stuff in in the big book uh, is uh, kind of written in that 1930s vein, you know, by and by. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think. Uh, you got to look for the for the message in it, not the uh, you know not the way it is said. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think for me that was helpful to say um, you know restore me to sanity, right? Uh, in other words, restore me to being the person I want to be and not doing these things that are totally against the way I was brought up and and what I believe in. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And. You you mentioned that the third step was, uh, for, for lack of better words, maybe maybe uh, I, I can't remember the exact word you said, but your favorite your favorite step, the most important step, for me, having gone through these steps, step three was always the hardest for me to understand. <laughs> I, I I liked 
um, I liked kind of the action steps uh, because I knew exactly what I had to do. I could I could look at the step and speak with uh, my trusted advisor, my sponsor, and, and and do the homework. You know, make that inventory. That that was I could wrap my mind around that. But but step three made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. I had a hard time understanding what that meant. How do I, what is my will? What is my life? And and then how do I turn it over? Um, Speak to that a little bit. Yeah. um, And, and I think this was really hard for me early on too, because again, I'm a person that really likes to run the show. I think, you know, if everybody would just act the way I thought they should act, the world would be a much better place, right? And I'm sure a lot of us feel that way, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I guess for me, that being willing to take direction and being willing to acknowledge that um, as much as I might like to run the show on everything, I don't run the show on everything, right? It's that kind of like the serenity prayer, right? The God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, right? Other people, places, and things, I really cannot change them as much as I might try. I can't force somebody to behave a certain way. Um, and so that was a kind of an evolution for me. But uh, today, I just, you know, there's the, there's this third step prayer about, you know, essentially like God help me do your will, right? Uh, relieve me of the bondage of self and, uh, and that kind of stuff. And that's super helpful to me, right? When I'm in a situation where I'm trying to decide what to do, I really want to do what I think uh, my benevolent God would want me to do in that situation. And it's, it's a kind of liberating, right? It just takes, it takes it off of me. I don't have the weight of the world on my shoulders. Um, and, and so for that reason, that's kind of why it's, I feel it's been the most important step as far as not so much staying sober because I, it's it's a no-brainer that my God would not want me to pick up a drink right now or a drug, uh, but just as far as living life on life's terms and being able to sort of just go along with the current and not always be trying to fight and 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 uh, you know go upstream and and uh, just uh, exhaust myself with things that basically are not going to make a difference are just going to make me miserable. That that whole acceptance thing is just. Uh, super helpful that kind of the, the notion of god's will whether you believe in a in a traditional god or not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thank you for that clarification and then we get into this inventory process um hmm. made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and then the then the following step step five is 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 closely related a lot of people uh, in in 12-step programs kind of get stuck on this particular step or the, or this, these, this set of steps. Uh, how, how is that for you? I'm, I'm sure you've done it multiple times, you know, over the course of three decades, but how, how is, what is your experience with, with steps four and five of this inventory process? And what did that look like for you? Sure. And for a lot of people in recovery, these are the most difficult steps, maybe even more difficult than making amends. Um, Although that's hard too, because you have to basically admit you're wrong and just go with humility to to people that you've wronged and, and ask for forgiveness. And uh, but but I think for a lot of people, because they are so ashamed of some of the things that they've done in their drinking and using careers, um, 
they just do not want to tell anybody that it's just that deep dark those deep dark secrets but those kind of keep us sick so for me and yes i've been through the step through you know this inventory step a number of times and, and shared it with a sponsor um but it, like the fourth step where you're just basically writing stuff down these are the things that i've done that i uh you know just uh that i'm not proud of or that uh you know that i just wish that i had never done um writing it down is therapeutic and but it's really scary to go share that with another human being right uh and uh, of course once you're finished with it uh right you're it's it's such a relief to have that kind of uh, off your shoulders at least it was for me and i think it is for a lot of people uh but they they fear being judged they fear you know somebody else knowing their deep dark secrets and i i think there's something really therapeutic about getting that out there and it's just again it kind of like takes a weight off your shoulders um so but but it, it's got to be you know it's got to be searching and fearless right and you and you want it to be comprehensive you want to you know everything you can think of um, and then, of course, a couple of years later, you go back and you're like, oh, I don't, I'm not sure I ever had thought about that. Uh, so, and then there's, the, of course, uh, you know, with, you know, you continue to take personal inventory and when you're wrong, promptly admitted it, right? That's a later step. Um, so it's basically something you do on a day-to-day -day basis. You're, you're always taking inventory, but, but writing it down is this big opus of like, you know, your war stories, all the things you've done to other people. Um, I think it really kind of sets a tone for moving on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there, there are, um, I think people, people maybe do the fourth step, this inventory process in, in a variety of different ways. Uh, but, but the big book, uh, which, it, which of course is the, this is kind of the, the term that's used to, uh, describe the the book that's actually called Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's a, it's the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It gives it gives a pretty um, a pretty strict formula for for uh, for for preparing this fourth step inventory, and and that entails writing down res our resentments, right, um, our fears. Uh, and then our, our uh, sexual inventory. Uh, th these are kind of the categories that, that we are instructed to, to focus on. What is it about, uh, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably, I should probably give the, uh, the other way, I'll say a, a lot of people kind of write, just write down everything they've ever done in their entire life and, and call it a four step, but, but that's not really what the big book asks of, of us. Why, what is it about resentments, fears, and, and a, a sexual inventory that, um, that is so important? Why, why, why these areas? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I've done, I've done a fourth and fifth step in, in both ways. I, and, uh, I do think that, um, resentments in particular, um, are something that, that keep us from, uh, from getting sober a lot of times, because if I'm sitting there just stewing about something that, whether it's something I perceived somebody else did to me or um, somebody didn't respond the way I thought they should have. I mean, that is the seed that can grow into, you know, me picking up a drink. So 
Uh, and, and fears also, you know, we spend a lot of time worrying about things that may, may never happen, um, or maybe they will, but, but worrying about it doesn't really make them better. Um, and then, of course, your sexual, uh, you know, the way your sexual activity may have been harmful to other people or selfish or things like that. Um, all of that, uh, I think, you know, it's a formula that has worked over the years. But for me, I think I, I don't want to break my arm patting myself on the back, but today my life is just so remarkably free of resentments. And I, I just, I am so thankful for that, Tyler. I just, um, I used to be just a ball of resentment, you know, back uh, before I sobered up and in early sobriety too. I mean, I could just, I was just, my brain was constantly just squirming with, with anger and, you know, the self-righteous indignation of, you know, how dare that person treat me like that, you know, and it is just such a blessing to not have that. And I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that's sort of third step also, um, you know, it's just, I, I love that uh, there's, there's tons of uh, sort of homespun uh, AA wisdom and slogans and whatnot. And one of my favorites is that, uh, Harboring a resentment is like swallowing poison and then waiting for the other person to die, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. they don't give a crap, right? They may <laughs> not even know that you're, and here you are like, ah, you know, you're just going nuts. Uh, and and uh, so, yeah. Um, anyway, I think that's, uh, but also, well, however a fourth step gets done, uh, as long as it includes those important things, right? Fears, resentments, and, and uh, sexual uh, activities or inventory, um, I think uh, the idea is to get it all down and get it all out, right? And uh, there's nothing you can do to change the past, but um, you acknowledge it, you agree not to do those things again to the best of your ability, you share it with somebody, and uh, you know, then later on there's going to be amends to be made uh, to some of those folks. Right, right, right. And then the so, so you you make this inventory, and like you said, searching and fearless. Um, give it your all, scan your entire life, and and generally speaking, more will be revealed. the The first inventory is rarely the the final inventory, right? <laughs> Particularly give, given the state that many of us are in when we uh, <laughs> develop these resentments, for sure. Um, but the, but the next the next couple of steps um i'll i'll read them and then and then you can speak to them we're entirely ready to have god remove all these defects of character and um i should probably point out that that the conventional wisdom within aa is you you can be an atheist and 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 participate with these steps and, and interact with these steps you, you can insert whatever your version of higher power is um, right in, in there for god i i've i've noticed that many who start as atheists um come to evolve uh, you know over time or or change maybe maybe evolution is the wrong word but but change to to um think that okay maybe there is a, a benevolent god out there and and the evidence for that is i I found myself in these rooms because I couldn't stop drinking on my own. I didn't come here because I, you know, I needed, I needed a hobby. I, I was kind <laughs> of, kind of forced here. And, um, I, everything I tried, uh, left me with another drink in my hand, 
and and now I don't even think about drinking, and and, and that that doesn't just happen. Um, there has to be a, a, this benevolent God of which of whom you 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 speak, and so I, I, yeah. I do see that change. But then yeah. the, the next steps here, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and then humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. Um, what's the what's the difference between those two steps they they seem like they could be i mean almost one steps yeah, <laughs> yeah. well they had to add it up to 12 right they don't want 11 <laughs> i guess uh, uh, but um well you know one is uh, to be to be ready for something right it, it kind of reminds me of what they say about the third step because it's like made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of god as we understood him it doesn't say we actually did that it just said we made a decision right mm. it's like uh you know two birds are sitting on a fence and one bird makes a decision to to, to fly away um but right he made the decision but did he actually fly away and so it's kind of like that right mm-hmm, you're you mm-hmm. uh, became ready to have uh, god remove these and then humbly asked him to remove the shortcomings and the sixth and seventh step you know they relate back to your your inventory right from the fourth and fifth step uh, but trust me you know i've been sober 30 years i still have plenty of character defects i have plenty of shortcomings i'm, I'm not a perfect human being and um so we can ask and these things uh, sometimes get taken away, but like like the resentment thing, right? I, I used to be full of resentments. That has largely gone out of my life, and I'm so thankful for that. But you know, there's like I still drive like a jerk sometimes, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, I can pray all I want that that be taken away, but yet I get behind the wheel, and you know, some guy's trying to pass me, and you know, yeah. so. Uh, but it, it's certainly it's a helpful construct just to say. A lot of us, I think, are kind of, we're fond of our shortcomings, right? We're, we may be fond of uh, certain things that, uh, you know, if we could just push a button and make them go away, maybe we would make them go away. But we get, there's a payoff to some of these things, right? Like, uh, you know, getting angry on the road when somebody cuts you off or something like that. Uh, there's a certain, uh, you know, that, that, self-righteousness that uh, that little adrenaline wh- whatever it is so um i think the, the notion of at least being being receptive to having some of these character defects taken away um that that opens that door right and i think just by by going to the rooms by you know uh, working with others and by working the steps a lot of those things just do take a get taken away in time right there's the these promises, right? That the, the, there's a whole bunch of them, and it's you know we'll suddenly know how to handle situations that used to baffle us, and and uh, you know we will uh, lose our sort of selfish leanings and and get more into being of service to others and that. And those things, to me, they've happened over time, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So that's that's I believe been a great blessing. Yeah. You, you speak of the promises and the the, one, the promise you mentioned, we will intuitively intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. I recall, let's see, well, my daughter is uh, eight and a half, so this is, you know, this is eight and a half years ago, uh, coming up on nine years ago. But it, it was, I was the early part of my, early phase of my, my law career, um, struggling financially. Um, it, it was just a, just a, 
tougher time of life. And uh, my daughter, my daughter was born five and a half weeks early. So mm. kind, of, kind of there in the danger zone a little bit and then had to go to the NICU. And we weren't, of course, planning on, on, on her being born that early, but she was born on April 1st. Um, so no one even believed us. They thought it was an April fool's joke when we told everybody that, that we were in the hospital. Wow. And, um, I have, I, I had three other children at the time and, uh, my, my, now my wife's in the hospital. My daughter is kind of hanging on for dear life. There were some other complications that made it really scary. And, wow. and I was, trying to uh, get my little kids off to school, make sure my wife was okay, make sure, you know, hoping my, my newly born daughter is going to survive. And um, I remember driving to the hospital after getting the kids off to school and my wife was, you know, she was still in the hospital and my daughter was living there for a couple of weeks in the NICU. Oh. And I remember driving in traffic and it was just uh, as hard as it could possibly be in, in my life. You know, That's a lot. <laughs> it, it, it was wow. a lot. Yeah. And I noticed that I was calm. Um, and I noticed that it, it is as many things were go that were going on, it didn't feel that hard. And and, it, and, I, and as I was driving down the road, that this promise came to mind. We will intuitively hmm. know how to handle situations which used to, used to baffle us. And I thought, well, this is about yeah. as baffling as it can get. Yeah, and you were not falling apart, right? You were just yeah. managing it. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, this there's something to this. This works. Um, and then, yeah, hard not to invoke some kind of, you know, benevolent higher power helping you through that. Right. I mean, again, whether it's true or not, it, it, it feels that way. And I think it's, uh, it's super helpful, but yeah, well, I'm glad you got through all that and, uh, everything's good these days. Yeah. And then, and then the next step, of course, humbly asked him to remove it's, it's, um, it's, I think that's just a powerful reminder that we have to ask, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like yep. the key that unlocks the door. And I, I don't know why that's a hard one to, to remember for, uh, for me, I can't speak for everyone, but sometimes it's hard for me to remember to do that simple step. Ask. Um, okay. Then eight and nine, these seem, these seem a little bit challenging here. We make a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing. So this is another one of those kind of mental yeah. steps where you're not actually doing any any anything other than making a decision or having a, a mind shift a shift yep. in mindset but became willing to make amends and then then the next step is when we make those amends how is that experience for you uh i'd say for the most part it was really positive uh, you know there with a few exceptions and you know that's that's why you know a lot of people get sober and then you know they suddenly want to go out and start making amends before they've worked any of the other steps because it's it's tangible right and they're feeling guilty about something they they wronged somebody or they stole something or um and but it's it's not time yet because because you know we have to be completely prepared for any reaction right and so sometimes people a majority of people are like you know, thank you. And, uh, I accept your apology and, 
you know, I, I'm glad that you got yourself together and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's those who, you know, will say, screw you, you're a piece of crap. And um, I don't ever want to see you again. And, you know, why are you even contacting me? I don't care about you or, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, when you're in, in your first month or two of sobriety, that's probably, you know, that's a perfect excuse to go out and drink if somebody, so, because you're expecting them to say, oh, that's so wonderful. Yes, of course, I forgive you. But uh, again, we're powerless over over other people and the way they behave and and they, they're entitled to, right? I mean, we did something wrong to them. And um, so in any event, for me, they were they were somewhat liberating steps. You know, the sad ones are the ones where somebody has died or, or there's there's really no tangible thing that can be done. I mean, you know, you can write a letter and burn it or, uh, you know, there's a variety of ways to to deal with those types of things. But um, so, but there's just that living amends. Right. It's like mm -hmm. I did this this bad thing. I can no longer make amends to the person that I harmed, but I can just make a commitment one day at a time not to ever do that to anybody else again. Um, yeah. And sometimes that's as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. There's this there's this clause here uh, in making amends, and it says, "Except you so make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others." <laughs> that clause could very easily become uh, maybe an escape hatch. Ah, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to bring that up. That could injure them. You know what? Well, what level? It says yeah, I mean, to me, it says to them or them or others, right? But others is not you, right? So just because it might be harmful to you, that at least that's the way I read it. Different people read it differently, and um, you know, if it's gonna, if it were something that was gonna completely blow your career or bankrupt you or something like that, then maybe that indirectly would be harmful to others too. Um, mm. but just because it's harmful to you doesn't give you that, <laughs> that mm -hmm. little excuse, in my opinion, that's, mm -hmm. uh, if you're my sponsee, that's what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted if I need a new sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> now the final three steps are oftentimes referred to as the maintenance steps, 10, 11, and 12. Uh, and I'll just kind of go over these real quick. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That's 10. 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our, all our affairs. And like you have uh, alluded to, and and in fact, directly mentioned, that these are these steps are written in order for a reason. Um, you can't jump to ten, eleven, and twelve. Um, these these are um, well. Let me let's let's see your take on it. How, how do these steps show up in your life? How do you work these steps in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, the 12th step, uh, you know, as far as working with other alcoholics and trying to practice the principles, um, I do think that sometimes a, a newcomer will always say, you know, it's the most important person in a room. And that newcomer that comes in with a fresh war story, just all beat up, that person is helping me a lot. So in a way, they're already doing 12-step work, right? Um, but, uh, you know, the 10th step, uh, it's kind of like just a continuation of, of the fourth and fifth step, right? It's like, um, and that's one that I use on a daily basis, right? We continue to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, 
promptly admit it. And I was a person before I sobered up, I would never apologize. It did not matter how much I knew I was wrong. I would just dig in my heels, you know, and uh, uh, I mean, I would once in a while, like when I was a kid, if my dad said, you know, you have to stand in the corner until you're ready to say, I'm sorry. Well, I'd stand there for whatever I thought the minimum period that, you know, <laughs> that would, would, that would credibly, you know, uh, like I thought about it enough to apologize. I'd come and apologize and I would just be totally lying. Right. Um, unlike my brother who would stand there, uh, you know, maybe all night long or, you know, skip dinner and just cause he was too stubborn to ever apologize. But, but in, in real life, I mean, I would, I was just not one to ever admit I was wrong. I was always right. Um, and I had that behavior modeled somewhat at home. Um, and I just cannot tell you what a what a delight it is to be able to say I was wrong, um, you know, uh, please forgive me or or whatever the case may be. Just to be able to apologize, uh, it's something I think, um, especially uh, a lot of guys, but also a lot of women. Uh, I mean, we don't like to admit that we were wrong, uh, and. I have to admit, you know, on a, on a personal level, sometimes I will apologize or admit I'm wrong, even when I'm pretty sure I wasn't. And maybe that's not rigorously honest, but it's super therapeutic, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you know, the whole rigorous honesty thing, oh, you know, does this dress make my butt look big or something like that, right? Uh, but that, that's a whole nother issue about, about rigorous honesty. But for the 10th step, um, it is, I encourage listeners to just, just practice it once in a while. Just just practice saying I'm sorry or I was wrong, and just see what happens. If if you haven't done that in a while, just just do it. Just uh, just give it a try, and you I think you might be amazed at just how therapeutic and how positive that can be. Yeah, yeah, I I will second that notion for sure. <laughs> and, and, and then the eleventh step. I mean, that's just basically uh, you know that's prayer and meditation, right? So that's something that sort of you know, goes throughout it. And, and again, you do not have to be, uh, you know, a, a member of a, of an organized religion, uh, as long as you just acknowledge that there's a mystery, that there's, uh, so there are forces that we cannot see and that it's bigger than, bigger than you or me. Um, that's really all you need. And, and you don't have to believe in God to, to meditate, right. Or to, uh, whatever you can think praying is, um, and and I, to me, the most important part of it is it says praying only for the knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. So that means, I remember when I was in rehab, people would be like, oh, I prayed that it would be a sunny day and, and look, it's sunny today. And it's like, yeah, well, guess what? You're in Southern California. You know, it's like 98% chance that that's going to be the case. But, but, you know, we're not supposed to be praying for a sunny day. We're not supposed to be praying to win the lottery, right? We're supposed to be praying that we know what that benevolent God's will for us is and the power to carry it out. And that's, I try to keep it to that. And uh, that's, uh, it also makes your prayers a lot shorter, (laughs) which is is good when you're trying to like not fall asleep when you're in bed and, uh, you know, but anyway, yeah. So those are super important steps, those last few steps. And I don't think there's anything wrong with aspiring to them in early recovery, but I don't think you can do them justice till you've worked the others. Sure. Sure. Um, I think it's probably worth pointing out here, uh, the, so, so in step eight, it says made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 
What is, does amend mean saying I'm sorry? What, what does amend mean? Yeah. I mean, usually it's, it's, uh, that's part of it. Uh, but you know, there may be some tangible amends that need to be made if there was, uh, you know, if there was money involved or any kind of, uh, property or anything like that. But, um, mostly it's just, um, it, it's giving a, a humble and genuine apology for what you did, you know, admitting you were wrong and, um, not trying to say all the reasons why you might have done it or anything like that, just sort of an unconditional um, apology and restitution when there's restitution to be made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, I was always taught that y- you you make that apology without any without any buts, you know. Right. No, no, I'm sorry, but, you know, you kind of had it coming, you know. None, <laughs> yeah, none that wouldn't that. qualify. Yeah, yeah, no. You stick to your side of the street and, and, and probably uh, just as important, uh, there, there is kind of a, a formula in the big book. Um, and, and I'm kind of going from memory here, but it's basically, I did this and, um, it, it, you don't even have to say the words, I'm sorry. Cause m- many of us, uh, you know, by the time we get to, uh, the rooms of recovery, we have a lot of sorries that have been said, <laughs> you know, yeah, amen. To, to the point where I'm sorry, doesn't mean a whole lot to the people in, in our lives. Um, so it's, I did this thing, it was wrong. What can I do to make it right? You know, and yeah. then be what, be ready for whatever it might be. And I found that when I followed that formula, most people said, you know, I'm just glad that you're recognizing this. What you can do to make it right is, is, um, don't do it again. Keep, don't do it again. Right. And, and keep doing what you're doing. You know, it's a stit keep working these, these steps and, and, uh, keep improving your life. You know, there, and then there are those people that say, yeah, I want that money back or, you know, I want you to fix that, that, uh, door or whatever the case might be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think for me asking for forgiveness was a, a significant part of it and you can't make somebody forgive you, but at least if you ask for forgiveness, then you've put it out there and, and, uh, it, it's nice when you do get when, when people genuinely do forgive you for something that that you've done that you wish you hadn't done that you wish you could go back and uh, you know not do but but there it is um so tyler before we wrap up there was a couple things i just wanted to make sure we we briefly mentioned um harm reduction and medication yes, assisted yes, yes. treatment um and i do think it's important and i might have mentioned uh, on our previous podcast that, that my dad is who just turned 88 a couple days ago. Uh, he's back in Ohio and he is a psychiatrist who still works four days a week. And wow. uh, about half of what he does is medication assisted treatment with Suboxone hmm. uh, and some other meds for opioid addicts in, in rural Geauga County, uh, Ohio. And um, so, you know, I'm somebody who historically I've always had that bias for for abstinence, right? It just makes sense to me, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's like, why on earth would you put something in your body that might make you just want to take a whole bunch more of it? But I have to, I have to concede that you know, there's uh, ample medical literature that shows that that uh, this kind of harm reduction with uh, with Suboxone, which is a uh, kind of an opioid mixed agonist antagonist. Um, really works. I mean, if you compare that with people who are trying to go completely abstinent, 
um, there's just a much better success rate. People can take Suboxone, they can function, they can they can take it for years. Uh, and, you know, at some point, many of those people will want to get off it. And, um, you know, it's, it's recommended that they not do that too soon because there's a much higher risk of relapse. So I pretty much, even though it kind of rubs me the wrong way, um, I, I have to support it. I mean, it's, it's definitely much better than going out and dying from an overdose of this Chinese carfentanil or, or whatever's out there now, you know, being packaged up into what looks like pills of oxy or, or whatever it is. So, um, so I'm not at all against that. And similarly, there are some folks in these 12 step programs that are very, very much against not just you know, say methadone or Suboxone or any of those things, but against any medication, right? Prozac or, or, or Lexapro or, you know, and I just think that that is super destructive, right? Uh, that's, um, I just, anybody listening, you know, if you, if you have a depressive condition um, and there's a medication that can help with that, um, that does not mean that you are not in recovery, uh, and, uh, just don't let anybody tell you that, please. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, um, I, I would encourage people to get, get a doctor or a mental health professional who is familiar with, uh, with substance use disorders and whatnot. But, uh, because I mean, if, if you have anxiety and you take something like, uh, from the Valium family, I mean, that's, that's a little different, right? Those are kind of abusable drugs. Uh, and, and this is all just my opinion, mm -hmm. but, but I, I just, I've seen really destructive things. I've seen people actually commit suicide because their sponsor told them that, that Prozac was a drug and that they weren't, they weren't sober if they were taking Prozac and they just, you know, cold Turkey and then, uh, you know, jumped in front of a train. And that's just, I, I just think that is a, a tragedy and, um, you know, we're supposed to have no opinion on outside issues. Uh, somebody's sobriety date is that's between them and their sponsor and um, certainly non-abusable type psychotropic drugs are something that absolutely should be part of the, you know, part of the toolkit for people who are trying to get better. So anyway, I just wanted to make sure I didn't not say that since I have this platform. Thanks to you. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And and if if you if you don't mind, I'd like to ask a follow up. So we'll we'll just stick with the suboxone. When when is a, a good time to start thinking about tapering off the suboxone? And is it um, what what does that look like? Is it you probably can't just stop that cold turkey? Uh, how challenging is it to get off the suboxone and, and when might one start contemplating getting off of it? <laughs> well, you know, I've been a suboxone prescriber for quite a few years, but I, I rarely actually have used it for, for substance use. You know, I, in my practice, I'm mostly taking care of, uh, you know, frail older nursing home residents and hospice patients. So I do use it for pain. Sometimes it's a, it's a pretty good pain medication, especially in people who have uh, had trouble tolerating other stuff, but so probably you should invite my dad on the show and he can tell you more. But what I've heard is that, uh, um, it's not a good idea to try to, um, uh, detox somebody off it completely in the first year, probably 18 months would be when they start thinking about it, but there is no push for most people. I mean, if, if they're comfortable on it and they're doing fine, uh, it's like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, I think a lot of people 
all things being equal, they'd like to just not have, not be putting substances in their body if they're, you know, if they're in sobriety. So um, it's natural for people to want to start asking for that early on. It's just, you know, the body of evidence suggests that staying on it for longer, um, it's less likely to result in, in a significant relapse. So, um, but it's an individual decision. And obviously there's plenty of people who could get off it quickly. I mean, sometimes they use it just to, just, to detox. detox yeah. yeah. And then, you know, some of them do stay sober for long periods of time. So um, it's really, uh, I'm sure it's an individualized decision, but what the evidence suggests, I think, is you wait about a year and a half before really seriously thinking about trying to taper down. As far as how hard it is, it's not really that hard. I mean, you go, you know, if you're on eight milligrams, you go to six, you go to four, you go to two, you go, go to one. And, um, the physical symptoms shouldn't be, shouldn't be bad. And if somebody starts to develop some cravings or something like that, I, I suppose you can kick it back up. It's just not something I have a lot of, uh, of experience with. Well, maybe I'll uh, invite your dad on the show if he'd be, if he'd be willing, that would be a very, there, there is just such a huge problem. I, I, I see, I, on my way to work, I see people using fentanyl. It is just, there, there's a billboard saying one pill can kill and yeah. within a block I'll see people smoking fentanyl on the side of the road. It's And it really is Russian roulette. I mean, it because I mean, literally a pinhead amount, you know, it's a, a tiny, tiny microgram amount can be lethal. And that's just so scary because there's really no quality control. Uh, so that's it makes it even more important, I think, now because the risk of a, of a really serious adverse event, you know, an overdose death um, is so much higher now um, with these products uh, kind of flowing in. Yeah, absolutely. Your time is valuable. You have um, you have really you've really helped me. Um, it's just been a delight speaking with you about this and and i'm i'm likewise i'm really confident that that people will find value in this particular episode um I, there there were so so many other directions i wanted to go but there but we are we are running out of time here um before we before we close um any are, are there any words of wisdom that you'd like to share to somebody out there who's who is thinking, you know, as I listen to this, maybe I do have a problem. What do, do they just pop into a meeting? What 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 do they do? What's the? I mean, it's a it's scary trying to find help and trying to admit that you have a problem. What 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 are your recommendations? Yeah, thank you. That's really a good question. So I think there's a few things. And during a pandemic, things are a little bit different. But one thing that for many people might be a lot easier is just find yourself an online meeting. And you know, you don't have to physically walk into a room that's obviously a whole different level of, uh, of discomfort. And most of us have spent plenty of time in, in Zoom meetings uh, over the last almost two years now. So uh uh, that's one way to to, to do it. That's uh, I think less threatening, but it, it's always threatening. And in early recovery, it's you know you got to get used to picking up that phone, calling your sponsor, calling other people in the program, and and you know the the thousand pound phone that they say. So um, all I would say is um, you know look for the similarities and and uh, don't don't concentrate on the differences um try different meetings because different meetings have different uh, kind of personalities but 
I am confident in saying that, it, you know, if you're a newcomer and you're going to a meeting for the first time, or, you, you know, you're in very early recovery, um, they're going to uh, welcome you with open arms. And uh, that's one of the just great things about this recovery community is, I mean, I could go, you know, I could be over in, you know, Southeast Asia or something like that. Uh, look in the directory, find a meeting, walk into a room. And I'm like, it's like being there at a family reunion. You know, it's everybody that's got that commonality, you know, people that like to get hammered in the same way I do and that, uh, um, you know, have basically turned their lives around. So it might sound a little bit like a cult. And, you know, we always say, look, you wear the program uh, like a loose fitting garment. It does not, it's not meant to be constrictive. It's not, you know, um, you just have to do a few simple things. I mean, uh, uh, no matter what, don't pick up that first drink, right? That's the simple, don't drink between meetings, go to meetings, don't drink between meetings, right? Call another alcoholic, uh, those types of things. But, but uh, I just think um, for me, it's been such a, such a huge life-changing uh, experience and I'm so grateful for it. And, and uh, I think it can work for, people in a wide variety of sort of belief systems. Uh, it really doesn't matter where you are, who you are. Um, you're going to be welcomed because we're all, we're all after the same thing. We're, we're, we're sick people trying to get well. We're not bad people trying to get good. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I would just encourage people to give it a try. And especially given the, uh, the online availability, that's, that makes it uh, real simple. You can do it right from your own house and, uh, um, and be willing to listen, but also be willing to share. Mm. And I, that's probably enough blathering out of me. I can't believe how long we've been, we've been at it here, Tyler. I know it really flew by. Um, sick people trying to get well, not bad people trying to be, trying to get good. That's a, those are good closing words. Uh, I, again, uh, appreciate your time i'm indebted to you for your vulnerability your honesty and it's really um it's really quite inspiring to to hear to hear your story i mean you are um at at the top of of your career you've you have all kinds of professional accolades but you also have this this thing this this alcohol problem that generally we associate with those trusty guys in the bottom of the basement but that's not true right <laughs> uh, the alcoholism is no, or alcohol rather is no respecter of persons as they say absolutely it, no i mean a lot of the people that that uh, that you'll meet in these rooms are super high functioning uh super smart funny uh insightful and uh yeah it's uh and of course, a lot of people that are still out there using alcohol and drugs and, and so on, um, they have those same characteristics. And I just, I feel blessed that I was able to come into these rooms, you know, and, and actually find a recovery program that worked for me. And I, it doesn't work for everybody, but uh, uh, it, it works for a lot of us. And um, it's definitely worth a try. Absolutely. Nothing, not a whole lot to lose, right? By the time you're right. ready to go. Well, uh, 
Dr. S, uh, thanks again for your time. And um, I, I look forward to talking to you again down the road sometime. <clears throat> Maybe All right. And I will hook you up with my dad too. So uh, he, he likes to talk just like I do. So Wonderful. <laughs> you'll probably enjoy him. Wonderful. All right. All right. Just don't don't ask him any questions about my war stories, okay? Because uh, he'll tell you how many cars I wrecked, and you know, <laughs> I, I can't make any promises there. But <laughs> right. I'll have to coach him to, you know. Uh, okay. All right, it's All right. been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure's been mine. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Well Beings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.